move from the kind of light Woody Allen signature romantic comedies that made him famous. There's so much misinformation. It doesn't matter what's true. What matters is what's believed. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Week on 3 with me, Janice Wong, where we look at highlights from the past week here on Radio 3. In the next half hour, we'll tell you what's hot in this year's Hong Kong International Film Festival that will kick off next month. We'll also look at the closure of one of our favourite cinema chains. And how can we miss the most talked about interview this week with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? Tune in to find out more. As we know, many events have been cancelled over the past year because of the coronavirus pandemic. So it's welcome news that the Hong Kong International Film Festival will, fingers crossed, take place next month, after it was axed last year. Albert Lee, the head of the Hong Kong International Film Festival Society, spoke to Phil Whelan on the Morning Brew program. The Hong Kong International Film Festival this year uh, is a bit special in a sense because we will have two opening films. Right. Uh, both of them are, are very significant Hong Kong productions. Uh, I know a lot of people have been, you know, saying that the Hong Kong film has been going downhill for a number of years now. Mm. Uh, but this year, you know, we will have, you know, two very significant opening films uh, to present to the audience. Uh, the first one uh, is by uh, a young director, uh, young, you know, <laughs> in comparison. In comparison with yeah, my age, yeah. uh, uh, Philip Young. Okay. Um, uh, the film is called "Where the Wind Blows," right. um, and uh, of course, you know Philip was uh, very successful with his last film uh, in 2015, a film called "Pot of Core," mm-hmm. uh, which won numerous and numerous uh, awards, you know, both in Hong Kong and and in overseas. Uh, the new film. Uh, you will have this world premiere in Hong Kong this time. Yeah. Uh, where the wind blows. And it stars, you know, Tony Leo and uh, Aaron Kwok. Okay. okay. You know, you, that, you made that comment about people saying that the film industry has gone down. Da, 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 da. It brings up that question about does nostalgia belong in the past? You know, if yes. somebody remembers a very, a very sort of famous film when they were a teenager, perhaps in the 80s or something, I think they're naturally going to say that. And, and, and Philip yeah. is of this generation in 20 years, you know, etc. And, uh, you know, while we're on that theme, you know, the second opening film uh, this year will be uh, quite a nostalgic film in, in, in many different ways. Yeah. Uh, is this, uh, the film is called Septet. Uh, the story of Hong Kong okay. uh, is an omnibus film um, made up of seven story, short stories, and they are all directed by iconic uh, Hong Kong. I'm looking at the list directors. now, so why don't you tell us who they are? Uh, well, you know, you have Sam Hong, yep. you have Anne Hui, you have Patrick Tam, uh, you have uh, Yun Mo Ping, yeah. Johnny To, uh, Choi Hak, and also the late and great. Uh, Ringo Lam. They are the, all the, they're the big boys and girls, you know. Absolutely. They were, you know, household names, you know, since, you know, the 1980s, you know. 
they were, you know, all directors from the golden age of Hong Kong cinema. Yeah. So what they have done is they have got together uh, and made this omnibus film, each mm. selecting a story set in different period of time in Hong Kong mm-hmm. uh, and, and made the film. Uh, the film was very nostalgic in the sense that it was actually all shot on film. Wonderful. Uh, instead of digital. Uh, so it's all, it's all brand new material. It is all brand new material, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, take us through a, a few of highlights. You're allowed to have some favourites, Albert, even okay. though you're allowed uh, to today. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, the, the closing film that we will have this year uh, is actually one of my uh, favourite films. Okay. Uh, it's a Japanese film, actually. Uh, it's called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy mm-hmm. uh, by the Japanese director uh, Hamaguchi. Uh, the film actually won a silver bear last week in yeah. Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the film will have its Asian premiere in Hong Kong. Uh, I saw the film already, and it's wonderful film. It's, uh, I would, I cannot uh, recommend this highly enough. How, how did you guys choose? Did you were there a bunch of you who your job was to curate the whole thing? Well, you know, we have a wonderful, wonderful team of curators and programmers. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, would only be cheering from the side. Okay. Uh, but most of the selection, most of the viewing, you know, uh, are being done by my team of uh, programmers. We have, you know, I think they probably have seen two, three thousands of films, you know, in, in making the selection. So uh, it's actually not an easy job. Yeah. Well, let me just rattle off the um, the sections here. And so we've got obviously sure. gala stuff uh, and, and awards. Mm-hmm. But pan-Chinese cinema, you've got masters and auteurs, world cinema, and then documentaries and kaleidoscope. Could you tell us about those? Do- well, you know, yeah, documentary, you know, is, is always uh, a strong feature of uh, the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Right. Uh, and, you know, and we would try to find... Uh, some of the most interesting, more interesting uh, documentary films from all over the world. Um, and this year, you know, there's actually one film that I would highly recommend that, you know, you if you get a chance to see it, watch it. It's called uh, Mr. Bachmann and His Class. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, uh, it's a German documentary film uh, by a first-time director, Maria Speth. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, the film actually last week won a silver bear in Berlin. Um, the film is actually very long. It's, I think it's almost about 200 minutes long. It's yeah. a documentary film, yeah. uh, but it's a very, very interesting documentary, and I, I cannot recommend that highly enough. Um, well, looking at your website, it's as though nothing really bad has happened over the past few months. So one, two, three, four, we've got about seven or eight categories here. Each one of these has about, you know, eight-plus movies in it. Yeah. So you're doing really well, no worries at all. Well, you know, uh, this year, you know, I think we have a total, you know, looking at the whole program, I think we are featuring uh, around 194, 95 films yeah. uh, from 50-odd countries and regions. So, you know, we've been doing okay, you know. I think there's uh, a lot of disruption to the entire oh, uh, gosh, yeah. cinema ecosystem. So, yeah. Um, there are films, you know, that uh, that we have curated for last year, which oh. unfortunately we had to cancel last year's festival. Yeah, uh, and you know, films that we are still, you know, that we still managed to keep, you know, uh, and and present this year. So um, 
I think we managed to do reasonably well. I think there will be okay. films, yeah. you know, to suit all tastes. Yeah, well, one thing, off, I know you're talking off the top of your head here, but one category that's always really popular is animation. Where are you going with that? Well, animation is one of my favorites. I grew up watching cartoons mm. and things like that. So uh, there is a, a very wide selection of animation film. Uh, there's one Russian animation that I personally I, I particularly like. It's called The Nose. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and that's a film that you should try to catch. Um, apparently, the filmmaker has spent the last 50 years in developing and making this film. So um, it's based on uh, the nose by you know Sostakovich, uh, and uh, and the whole project actually started way back in the 1970s. So it's all Shostakovich music. I mean, there, it's, it, this is widely talked about. There's a huge, great big nose with legs yeah. on the stage in the actual thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's based on Sostakovich music and also on, on the novel. So uh, it's, it's quite an unusual you know, animation film. That was Albert Lee, the executive director of the Hong Kong International Film Festival Society. So for now, the show will go on for the Hong Kong International Film Festival, where most of the movie selections will be shown at cinemas. But unfortunately, the UA cinema chain will not be a part of it, as it just announced its closure after 36 years in Hong Kong. Film critic Daniel Chan told Joanne Wong on Newswrap that the government could have offered greater support to the film industry, which was battered by COVID-19. Really sad, you know, because of the pandemic, and, you know, and, and a government, they did nothing to help the film industry, really, especially, the, you know, the cinema sector. Can you tell me more about the impact on the film industry, local film industry, with this, uh, the closing of this chain? I can't really see, you know, what's going to happen, but we should be hopeful. I mean, there's an, I mean, apart from um, closing UA Cinema, I guess some of you might have known that there is an opening of a new cinema called Golden Scene Cinema. You know, it used to be a distributor, but now they own a cinema in Canada Town. So I think that is still hope. So I think UA means kind of this sort of business kind of cinema operation is maybe a bit outdated. That's why, you know, they cannot really sustain. But I see, you know, because there's also Netflix, there's also online streaming. There are a lot of platforms we can explore for film distribution, film exhibition. So we can't just rely on cinema. So you think that the closing of this cinema chain, it Mm -hmm. kind of goes along with a bigger trend? Yes and no, because I don't think they have fundamentally changed the scene of Hong Kong cinema, I have to say, because it's always been like that. Right? I mean, compared to um, Broadway cinema, I think they have been more ambitious in terms of pushing Hong Kong cinemas. Whereas UA, I think they have done something. They have, you know, very interesting programming from time to time. But then, I'm, you know, I, I don't think I would mourn for its losing for for a long time. I mean, you know, if they have to go, then they have to go, right? Earlier, you also spoke about how the government didn't really help the film industry much. What were you hoping the government could have done? Well, they should give subsidies to every cinema, right? To cover the rent, at least. That's, That's the least they can do, I think. The pandemic is still going on. Do you expect more sufferings for the cinema sector? I, I do believe there will be more suffering, but we can't just 
I mean, as a filmmaker, as a cinema goer, we can't just sit and do nothing. I, for myself, I would go to cinema, you know, go go to cinema as much as I can, you know, to support it. That's what I can do, you know, as, as, a, as a sort of individual effort. But also, you know, as a filmmaker, we should explore different ways of exhibition, different ways of distribution, you know, because you can see, you know, there's a thriving scene on Netflix and, and online platforms. We can't just sit and do nothing. Do you expect more cinemas to close? It's hard to say. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. If If we don't... If, because I can see, like you know, I thought there would be a lot of people going to the cinema after everything sort of reopened, but I think people they rush to the K11 and and buying stuff, but you know, instead of going to cinemas. Are cinemas still that important to the film industry now? Then I myself, I think you know, cinema is, is. I really enjoy watching films on the big screen. I think it's really important, but not for everyone, right? Because everyone, we have a TV, we have, we have Netflix, we have thousands of entertainment for your phone. Who needs cinema, right? We have to rethink our um, relationship with cinema, really. Film critic Daniel Chan there speaking on Newswrap. Local artists have been trying to stay busy during the pandemic, and Radio 3's Alison Howe has been catching up with some singers to find out what they've been up to. This week, she spoke to Misha Ip on our Common Room program. Ta-da! Hello, everyone. I'm Misha. Hi, Hi Misha. I love the hair. I know, eh? It's a purple, pinkish, kind of like a unicorn color. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We're excited to learn more about you. For those who have already been a fan of your music, welcome to the show. For those who may be a little bit newer, a little bit fresher to your fan base, how would you like to introduce yourself? Um, I am Misha. I'm a singer. I joined the music industry, I think, about seven, eight years ago. I came out as a debuted as a band. I used to be called Trekkers, and then um, I had my solo debut in 2016, I think. So I've been in this industry for a pretty long time, and finally, last year, I entered this competition. It's called the Kingmaker. Yeah, this is when everybody started to realize and started to know me. Um, realize that oh, there's this singer in Hong Kong. She's called Misha, like that. is that show to you like does it really make a huge difference in terms of people finding out about your talent it's a huge difference yeah um, uh, talking about fan base you just look at my Instagram um, boost from 6,000 people to now 35k Ooh. and uh, yes <laughs> it's kind of like um, before nobody actually heard a lot of my songs I actually had a lot of songs released but nobody um, I mean, the audience isn't that big, but then after this competition, 
a lot of people realized, oh, there's this singer called Misha. Oh, now I hear her hear the, her old songs. Oh, I actually heard heard the song before, but I didn't <laughs> know she was Misha. So this competition changed a lot. I mean, not only the fan base, but even uh, how I perform on stage. Um, how do I? How I compose? How I connect with the audience? Um, all these kind of stuff. Like, um, yeah, it changed me a lot. Fantastic. According to yeah. you, as the ultimate person who has all the data, which、mm-hmm. song has people been googling back or YouTubing back ever since that show? Like a rediscovery of yours. It's called Sanba and Loi Dong Lok Kapiu. Yeah. Yes.、Um, it's okay if I say that. Of course. <laughs> Uh, that song is my favorite、um, because this is what I believe in: a song they have a lifespan. You know, I don't. I I I had this belief that I, even though back then when the song was released, nobody, not a lot of people heard of that song. People who heard the song, they loved the song. But then now,、um, people go back and listen to this song. So I think that. Even though back in back few years ago people didn't hear it, but then now the now the song the live is still going. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's still going, and I believe that one day,、uh, I don't know, one day it will be on the top. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could be the new Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas Is You." Like every year, it comes back to be a number one again. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe think of it that way, <laughs> right? You because you know we're in a world where it doesn't really matter when the release was. It's as long as out there, then people will gravitate towards it. Whether it's an incident, whether it was an event, so it's out there, guys. Go check it out and go show some especially, support. Especially, especially now the social social media so well established,、yeah. so you can actually listen back to any songs that they want to. We gotta talk about your takeoff from your band days, from Trekker to becoming a solo artist. Was that transition hard, or was it more natural? Oh、uh, well, it's reasonable if you think of it that way.、Um, mm. Because but both of my bandmates, they were my、uh, schoolmates. Right.、Um, one of them is a little bit older. He, he、uh, he's not the same year. But then we entered this competition, and then we got signed to Sony Music. That's when that was that. That's when we actually formed the band. The band wasn't formed before the competition. Oh, you were going as soloists. Uh, no, 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 no. We were we were the, in a band just for entering the competition, just to win win some like coupons. <laughs> Seriously, we wanted to win some coupons to buy some music,、uh, books, or something, you know. And、um, but then we won this、uh, contract with Sony Music. Wow. So so we formed the band, and then、uh, I think two years later. 
um, my company asked me, oh, you want to try being solo? Because it's really hard to work in a band, mm. especially when, when, when we first got together. We just want to win coupons. <laughs> we didn't actually... We didn't actually play together for a very long time. Right. We have a different taste of music. Um, uh, one of the members actually, he doesn't really like to be at the front. He, he likes to sit at the back. So um, a lot of reasons that didn't really work out for our band. And uh, so uh, my company asked me, oh, so you want to try solo? You know, so you can try different things. You don't have to be contained in this, in this one music genre. Mm. So I said, okay, why not? And then debuted uh, my first song, Kudante uh, Kuidofa. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I remember it wasn't very, it wasn't a success. Um, back then, this song was kind of rock. Mm. And Back then, not a lot of good feedbacks. But um, so I went back to be. Uh, I went back to the band. I went back to Trekkers and mm -hmm. released our album. Uh, and then I took some time off because I was trying to record new song for my solo. But I couldn't find the right tone. I couldn't find the right way to sing ballad. Especially when I was studying, before I studied opera, I studied um, classical music, so right. it was quite hard for me. Uh, I didn't know how to use my voice properly for the pop industry. I didn't know, there are a lot of things I didn't know. So it took me a while to discover my voice and finally I released another song called Namgindo. That was the song that actually brought me back up to my feet. Um, brought me back my confidence. Um, oh okay I can sing this way oh this is how I should use my voice I mean I'm still learning of course we're still learning to be better and but that was the first song that I I was happy about that um, when the mix came out when it was released I feel comfortable <laughs> That was Misha Ibb speaking on our Common Room program. Now let's turn to perhaps the most talked about interview the world over. The much-anticipated tell-all that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle had with Oprah. On Back Chat, Hugh Chiverton and Karen Ko discussed all the drama with Tim Hamlet, a writer for the Hong Kong Free Press and a former associate journalism professor at the Baptist University. Hugh began by sharing some views from our listeners. On Facebook, Horatio says of that interview, uh, with Oprah Winfrey, I'm not watching it because no person can think he or she can manipulate everyone through media. Oprah made her fortune from digging into people's lives for years. Guests come on these shows to air out their dirty laundry in return for money. As for Meghan, she's throwing all her toys out of the cot because she just realised she married the wrong brother. 
a measured but straightforward response from Her Majesty the Queen. She, by the way, also didn't want the job, but took one for the team anyway, and that was 68 years ago. I have more respect for this one person than the other three combined. And uh, TC says, uh, Horatio, well said. Uh, although the comment about Archie's skin colour and Meghan's suicidal thoughts were hard to take. I think she knew, or should have known, what she was signing up for. That's uh, from uh, TC. Uh, and uh, John says, we should be deeply grateful to Meghan, Harry and the whole cast of characters at Buckingham Palace for giving us something to talk about other than coronavirus and real or imagined Chinese perfidy. Uh, comic relief is most welcome in this dismal world. That comes uh, from John. Tim Hamlet joins us now, writer of the Hong Kong Free Press, former associate uh, professor of journalism at the Baptist View. Uh, Tim, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for, for joining us. Is, it, is this comic relief or is this... Uh, uh, high drama, tragedy? How would you see this? Oh, well, it's a sort of real-life soap opera, I suppose. I <laughs> don't find it um, very uh, amusing. I say it's a sad story, really. How so? Tim, why, why sad? Oh, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, she's not the first person to, to, to marry into a royal family and discover that it's really, <laughs> really unpleasant experience. Um, you know, it was a Japanese lady who, who married the heir to the throne who complained surreptitiously afterwards that it was awful living in the bed. Not not because of him, um, but because of the people who run the palace and have very sort of stuffy ideas. And you, you, you can trace this back to the, uh, the people who married Austrian emperors made the same sort of complaints, that there were rituals and there were rules which they didn't understand and there were old people who insisted on having their way. Um, it's a sad story. You know, I, 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 she, it's all very well to say that she should know what she would lend herself in for, but um, you know, when you're in love with someone, you, you don't take much notice of their warnings, I suppose. Um, I mean, Tim, I watched the entire interview, and I did not get the impression that um, uh, uh, Megan... She was she was very reasoned and very measured in what she said, and she was she took pains to separate the members of the royal family from you know what we refer to as the institution and the firm. And I think I think what is shocking is that you know this is not the 1800s anymore. This is the 2020s. We we live in a totally different world. And although you may say that yeah, she should have known what she was signing up for. It, it's you would think that you know an institution like this would hopefully move with the times and and that seems to be obviously not what is happening so i, I don't know if there's going to be any lasting effect but i was actually pleasantly surprised by the tone and also the candid uh, nature of everything that was revealed well it's difficult for, for the institution to, to to come into the 2020s because it's it's a basically medieval concept that, that uh, you, you have a family and, and they pass the crown down through the generations. Um, it's, it's really, I think, probably now regarded by a lot of people as an anachronism. I, I think a lot of people would not dream of disturbing it while the Queen is the Queen because um, she's been there for a long time and, and you, know, you have to be my age to dimly remember a time when someone else was doing the job. But uh, after she goes, I, I think there will be a lot of pressure for, for the whole thing to be rethought and possibly even uh, abolished because it's, uh, it's an anachronism.
That was Tim Hamlet, a writer for the Hong Kong Free Press and a former associate journalism professor at the Baptist University. And finally, to close this week on three, I leave you with a bit of Steve James. On his program this week, he featured Bruce Channel's 1962 million-selling number one hit record, Hey Baby. The song features a prominent riff from harmonica player Delbert McClinton, who while touring the UK in 1962 with the Beatles, gave John Lennon some harmonica tips. Lennon put the lessons to use right away on their first single, Love Me Do. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend. If you'll be my girl.